Welcome to That Feels Like Home, a new podcast by the Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture, reaching you from Middlesex University in London. I'm Ana Baeza, and I'll be hosting this season to talk about the different meanings we attach to our homes, building new stories from our collections that connect to contemporary issues. We invite academics, creative practitioners, and students to rethink the past through the lens of the present. Our guest for the podcast today is a very long-standing friend, Josie Barnard. She's worked with us at Middlesex University. Welcome, Josie. It's great to have you here again. Hello. Good to be here. Josie is Associate Professor in Creative Writing at Dimmon Ford University. She's an award-winning writer of theory, fiction and non-fiction. Her works include studies, novels, creative non-fiction, books, print and radio journalism. She has taught creative writing widely and her key interests include how the digital turn impacts writing and publishing, a subject that she explores in her new book, The Multimodal Writer. And we've worked with Josie on countless occasions using objects from Moda as prompts for working with creative writing and journalism students and um, working across multiple genres as well, from fiction to non-fiction, journalistic articles. These are just some examples and you can find these on the website at Moda in the page co-creation. And today we're going to delve into the subject of writing and how we create a sense of place, especially in relation to our homes, because this is what the topic of our podcast series is. And in her new book, The Multimodal Writer, uh, Josie writes about how writers are expected to be more present online. And I think this is something that links to the way in which we relate to place, especially when we think about being offline and being online. So we'll discuss about how we read, write and think um, across these different platforms, but also how we think and write with objects. And we have lots of objects here in front of us today that we've got from the collection that relate precisely to this practice of writing, uh, especially paper. So I feel paper is going to really come up uh, in our conversation today. And in that sense, how we might also feel at home or displaced in the act of writing, depending on where we are. And that's something that I'll, I'll want to begin asking. Okay, Josie, so in all the podcasts that we've recorded so far, I always want to start with quite a broad question, but which can also be tricky to answer. And this is quite a personal question to you as a writer, and it's where are you, or what place are you in when you write? Writing is a very, very personal personal thing, um, and it depends very much from writer to writer. And I think one of the things that can make writing feel actually so exciting and so kind of adrenaline rich um, is because you are in a number of different places at once. So in one way, it's very, very interior. You you have to mine your own memories. You have to kind of consider all your senses. You're creating, uh, even if it's a non-fiction world, you're still having to recreate that world in your head in order to write it and translate that and get it on the page or on the screen. A lot of writers like to work at a desk with very familiar objects or completely differently in a very noisy space for example in in a cafe and so you've got all these different um experiences memories intellectual drives all all feeding in uh, so writing is is a highly charged experience and i want to ask you a little bit more about that interior space that you're describing because i, th- I think that there is a question of how one might feel at home or perhaps kind of uncomfortable maybe in the act of writing and and what's that interior space like and how does it relate do you think to this kind of sense of of home or 
unease, I guess, in the act of writing? Is, is one at home when one is, is writing? I think one is at home in different phases of writing. And I think one of the things that, that I explore in the book that's really important for writers is to have a really good understanding of their writing practice. So a lot of writers talk about the difference between um, the kind of person you are, the kind of persona you have to inhabit when you're drafting as opposed to when you're editing, for example. So if you are drafting, you probably want to feel a bit freer. When you're editing, you have to feel tough. You have to feel clear. You have to be able to to ruthlessly get rid of the dead wood. And those could be very, very different personas, and mm-hmm. they might make mm-hmm. you feel more able to draft. Mm-hmm. If you're in, a, in an office or a library, that might make you feel more able to edit, to be quite tough. So the interaction between the external space and how domestic or uh, formal that feels can have a very, very direct relationship with the internal writer who mm. you have to become in order to in order to perform effectively at different stages of the writing process and indeed uh, for different genres. It's really interesting, I think, what you're saying because it's making me look back on the collection that we have at Mode and think about the designs that we have in, in the museum and almost... I wouldn't speak of design as, as a writing process, but definitely as a coding process that perhaps has similarities in terms of the, of how we engage with different spaces and materials depending on what product we're designing. And what I'm thinking about specifically is different users, or, sorry, I should say users of different papers depending on the stage of the design process that you might be. So you might have, so we have, we have some book jackets here that we're looking at and they're kind of test pieces that uh, one of the designers of the Silver Studio uh, which is the large collection that we have here in the Museum of Designs, was producing in the late 19th century, Harry Knapper. And how actually this is quite, you can see it's quite a final kind of stage that's going to be sent to the publishers because it's quite thick paper, it's really kind of been, uh, it's, it's not quite finished, but it's almost there, as opposed to, say, much more of a draft stage where you would have had a cheaper paper and different uses of, of materials, or perhaps more pencil, as opposed to this piece which is already almost in full colour in these sort of dark hues, blues. So I, I like this idea of just thinking about how different materials, we engage with different materials depending on what stage in the thinking or writing, designing process we might be. I don't know if you, that sort of relates to the practice of writing in the materiality of it too. Absolutely. I think that uh, one one thing that many writers do is they have tools that are very particular to different stages of the writing process and or different uh, genres. So... Rihanna Pratchett, for example, always handwrites her to-do list. Mm -hmm. That has to be something that she carves out on a piece of paper. It's always important, really, I think, for a writer to have a sense of whether they prefer to draft on scrappy pieces of paper or moleskin notebooks, you know, which works Mm. best for you. It's important to know that because for some people a really beautiful moleskill notebook it will actually kind of be quite off-putting. Yeah. And you won't be able to do any rough notes because it will feel that you ought to be producing something beautiful and finished. So the more scrappy the bit of paper, the better for some writers yes. for that draft. And I think it's really interesting that that, that is, is a process that's essentially, you can see that happening in the collection here um, and that you, you, the paper that you're using will be of, of better quality as you progress through to the final stages. And I think that absolutely is reflected in, in writing process. Can I throw that back at you and ask you about your own writing process? How do you engage with different materials? What, is, what does it look like? And, and yeah, if you could just describe that a little bit, that'd be... 
for my own writing process, um, I start with uh, scraps of paper. Those are where my drafts begin to emerge. I have to interact with the paper, with the pen. Uh, I do like to, I I can't work with a pencil, for example, on a draft. That's not going to work for me. It has to be a pen. It has to be a pen with quite good flow but it doesn't have to be a a fancy pen by any means Um, and I will do a mixture of free writing where I just literally see what comes out and some quite careful planning but all of that tends to happen on on a piece of paper with a pen uh, in a room often with maybe some bark or some Mozart (laughs) (laughs) and then when I get to the final stages of course you can't really do without a computer a computer is so fantastic Mm. because you can cut and paste you can chop you can experiment and so I think um, that one of the things that's wonderful about that that I really enjoy is a kind of bricolage Mm. uh, feel to the process by that stage so that you can literally start moving paragraphs around Mm. and experimenting Mm. and tinkering so my writing process moves not from lower to higher quality paper but from fairly scrappy bits of paper which I always collect in folders as I'm moving along to um, a computer to online and and the same is true of the reading because of course reading is a really really important part of writing and I do tend to prefer reading hard copies uh, and I tend to like to make quite a lot of notes <clears throat> so at that point I do use a pencil if I'm I wouldn't write in pen on a book but I would maybe make a couple of notes in pencil and I use little stickers and things like that on that subject of the sort of marginalia that you have in the as you're reading and, and the annotations that that sort of register that experience do you ever find yourself being surprised by them when you return to them or is there something also about kind of encountering you know, a past, I guess, a past version of oneself in a way, say that it's, it's a book that you haven't returned to for 10 years, for example. How, that there's something quite interesting there, but in terms of the kind of place that we return to, no? Very much so. <laughs> I think one of the other things that's interesting about the marginalia is I usually fi- I find that I'm actually already thinking about three different projects as I'm doing the marginalia, mm. so, that, so that, you know, I will have some some relates to the project I'm working on currently and some is starting to relate to things that are very much in 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 a kind of you know emergent form that they're, they're, they haven't they haven't fully formed yet and then then I might have a question mark so it's it's always interesting to go back to see where the question marks really essentially have been removed because mm-hmm. I now know what that project has become but the mar- marginalia I think is is really important it's always fascinating to see other people's marginalia as well not that you can usually make much sense of it yeah. but to know that that very interior investigation has been going on yeah. and, and little bits of evidence have been left little there's a little paper trail of of evidence of people's past memories thoughts passions and I want to ask you how you think that translates or doesn't translate to the online environment because you write about new platforms and from social media to podcasting in the multimodal writer as being something that writers are required to adapt increasingly to a fast-changing environment. And I think in terms of marginalia, there's something about the kind of sedimenting of time or there's a sort of slowness in that practice, whereas with the online media, it's, it's very different. How do you see 
that writers need to adapt to this fast-changing pace of writing and, and how is this something that is lost in that process or is there something that's gained possibly as well? The digital age presents a lot of challenges for writers and my book The Multimodal Writer addresses uh, not just the challenges but how it's possible to uh, manage them in order to be effective and productive and really thrive in this very very fast-paced digital environment which of course still involves hard copies. So books haven't suddenly died. Artisan books, artisan journals are being published more. Mm. You know, there's, a, there's, there's a, an increasing enthusiasm for mm. them. Um, similarly, literary festivals, they're, they're, they're growing exponentially. The number of literary festivals keeps on going up because people want that human contact. One of the problems with digital is it can be very, very alienating. And it can feel as if you have lost agency so the agency goes into the digital sphere somehow mm -hmm. and you on the end of your keyboard don't have that you don't have agency anymore and so uh, some of the really interesting research findings in my own work with students and also by organizations such as the, the Carnegie Trust Carnegie Trust works with disadvantaged young people is that teaching online actually starts offline and a significant proportion of the ongoing work to enable digital literacy continues offline. Mm -hmm. So one of the key things to in improving digital literacy is actually engaging with tools, with paper, with human beings mm -hmm. in a real world environment. ask you about well I work together in fact and with students because we use objects and I think there's quite a lot of I suppose interest and investment there in, in the haptic engagement that students can have with with objects that are not in a digital environment and, and I'm seeing some of the objects that we have here there's this maquette there's some different fabrics but also there's um, you know other kind of objects like paper envelopes so what do you think when when students are engaging with these objects what is that adding to their practice of writing when the students are working with items from the moda collection they are physically connecting uh, things from the past with things that maybe feel soft or hard or rough they're interacting with objects that somebody else has chosen to collect and keep for reasons we may or may not know and it's really valuable for students to be uh, in a situation where they are given the opportunity to think really really carefully about how a, an object affects them so to to think about it afresh and one of the things if you are writing fiction that really is is important um for literary fiction is to be able to find a kind of poetic truth and that kind of poetic truth often involves unpicking what you take for granted and looking at it in a new way and that's what is wonderful about working with moda objects with the students is that they look at things that they take for granted mm -hmm. and and find a fresh approach so um for example if i just quickly pick up um an envelope so this is actually just an envelope from the Charles Hasler collection and he he was a designer and he collected uh, bits of ephemera and this particular piece is an envelope that he's ripped apart and, and flattened 
Uh, and the outside of the envelope is, is fairly straightforward. It's just yellow. Uh, but the inside of the, the envelope is extraordinary. It's a 1970s design with really, really... I mean, I, I'm not even sure you can call these flowers bold. They're kind of excessive. They're yeah. bright pink, bright yellow, purple. They're really, really really out there and it's very surprising to see them inside an envelope and and so these envelopes have actually been incredibly inspiring for the students this one with the flowers is 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 magnificent and so it it means that when the person was opening the letter they would have had this this kind of riot of flowers greeting them along with this personal communication and so on that level, it forces the students to think about people who are not there. We don't know who they are. We don't know why they were sending each other other letters. But it, for precisely that reason, it provokes them to begin to imagine. The envelopes are also incredibly useful because it helps the students start to think about communication mm -hmm. in hard copy as opposed to, for example, WhatsApp mm -hmm. Snapchat, not so much email, but thinking about the casual communication. So if you want to communicate good news or something casual, you know, a student is more likely to go via Snapchat or WhatsApp or some kind of other social media. But the idea of actually sitting down to write a letter mm. is very, very different. And so it forces the students to rethink social media communication that they would otherwise very much take for granted and assume is just how you do it. And the idea that there's an alternative is very important. Yeah, and I think on that it makes me think also of how people have talked about cyberspace as being this sort of empty space or that, that sometimes it seems to be beyond our sensory reach. Do you think that the envelopes then are also encouraging students to rethink the way in which they're engaging with cyberspace? So it's not only about understanding how communication changes when you have to sit down perhaps for hours composing a letter as opposed to very immediate communication but do you think then they maybe take this back to reflect on their own experience of writing and how that might lead to I don't know critique or change or, or you know yeah yes very much so I, I think the, the, the statistics are only really starting to come out regarding the effect that the new digital environment has on creativity and, and on output and on you know what is digital literacy it's extremely difficult to think about how you can define digital literacy because um digital literacy is now everything it's going in to to get your bank details it's it's you know buying your shopping online it's ordering a cab so digital literacy is now it now yeah. permeates everything really I think it could be more worrying. It could be that actually cyberspace, as you say, is this is this alien removed space and that people are becoming more passive and more, more nervous about putting stuff into cyberspace and actually creating something that might potentially kind of backfire, go wrong. It's hard to know what impact this is having on writing, but it's very clear that it's having an impact and that writers need to really begin to, as I say, assess their own creative writing process. Well, one of the things it does seem to be having an impact on is in that blurring of the boundaries between a more public and private division of spaces so and that I'm interested in that because it relates I think to the idea of where we feel at home and what does home mean is it a space of shelter is it something that sort of bleeds into the public sphere and even the notion of home as that sheltered space is even sustainable today so yeah I wonder if you have some thoughts on that from the perspective of how one writes and how one writes in a way that inevitably becomes public as soon as you've already 
produced it. It's, it's so public all the time, isn't it? Well, I think one of the things that has really come to the fore is the need for individual writers to gain a sense of what is home for them in terms of different writing environments. So some young writers feel that they really ought to write a blog. That's the thing that they ought to do. You ought to have a Twitter presence. You ought to have Mm -hmm. an Instagram presence. But for some people, uh, Instagram is going to be absolutely inappropriate because images are not are not their thing Mm -hmm. for some people uh who who write very quickly and very confidently a blog might be fantastic but for somebody who who has to craft every sentence a blog is not going to be a very good environment it's going to feel like pressure Mm -hmm. and i think that audience expectations are very important um but that actually to an extent the person who's publishing these outputs can set the the guidelines so it would previously have been publishers you know publishers might expect a popular writer to publish every single year so a commercial writer really has to have a book out every every year literary fiction a bit longer maybe three years um four years whereas on social media it's up to the individual Mm. writer to essentially indicate what kind of output they're going to be producing and I think having the confidence to do that and, and essentially not do not respond to mm. the platform's kind of system of likes and approval, which is external and which really is designed to try and encourage people to post more often, mm. but, but to kind of push that away and decide, well, what makes me feel at home in this platform and what do I need to do to ensure that I feel at home here? It's very challenging, though, I imagine, especially for younger writers and maybe some of your students. I don't know if it's something that you discuss with them in the sessions that you have and in your teaching, because managing those audience expectations and being able to separate it from your own practice as a writer seems like a tricky thing to me because it is so pervasive as you say but there's also another way in which these platforms are almost overly visual I would say or they rely so much on a certain visuality and and I was wondering as as I was hearing you speak you know like Instagram Twitter as well but especially Instagram what that focus on the visual what impact does that have on writing how is the relation between image and words change if it has yes it absolutely has changed in a text heavy Um, production you're describing the visuals whereas obviously with things like Instagram Twitter increasingly uh, the visuals come as well Um, and so you're supplementing the visuals um, and there is is tension between which has dominance Mm. and that takes quite a lot of skill but I think one of the things that's interesting is is it takes skill if you're trying to do it as a professional but if you're doing it uh, just for fun it's something that develops kind of quite naturally one of the things that's become very very clear um, during my program of research which has resulted not not only in this book but also in a number of articles and chapters is that actually one of the things that's very hard for students is to transfer skills that they have in a leisure context into Mm. a work context and that that's really difficult and that's one of the things that it's possible to really help with in the classroom is actually you do have the skills you do have the expertise and it's really a question of working out how to transfer it I think there's another element to your question which is regarding voice Creative writing traditionally uh, has set a lot of store by an authentic voice. And this term, authentic voice, 
has become really quite problematic because the idea of an authentic voice is applied generally to the fiction that is produced so that you will get the Dickens authentic voice and all of his novels you can feel that they are Dickensian you know and his voice comes through really really strongly or or Raymond Carver he's got this strong voice um but if there is just this single authentic voice then clearly the minute a writer starts a website or starts some other social media platform um, account, then, then then one of them is not authentic. And so then that becomes very problematic and it often freezes the students, the idea that they're supposed to be authentic on Mm -hmm. all these different platforms. So I think that one of the, certainly when I'm working with students and teaching, uh, one of the first things that I do is actually problematize that. So you Mm. said, well, you know, if you were talking to one person of one age and and one Mm -hmm. of of a completely different age, you would do what's called code switching mm. you know you would speak in a slightly different way you might use different terminology you would use more or less jargon what you would be more or more or less casual or formal um, and this kind of code switching doesn't mean that you're inauthentic it's it's appropriate it's polite just to go back to what you were saying about authenticity it also makes me think of the vulnerability that comes with putting your voice out there is that something that you problematize with students as well or how do you think Sometimes they might feel vulnerable in terms of what they're putting out there. Well, this actually comes back to human beings and real world environments. So mm. that one of the key things I found when I was trying to work out, you know, is there a set of quite simple and straightforward exercises that can be rolled out, assignments that, that can be used to teach um, some of these skills. Uh, and one of the things that came through loud and clear is, is that some very simple things helped enormously and one of them was for the students to just be sitting next to a friend when they when they start on a social media platform that either they're not familiar with or that they're using in a new a new way as a, as, as a professional tool instead of a leisure tool and just the simple act of sitting next to somebody with whom they feel comfortable makes it all much more doable and mm-hmm. less intimidating and that's not just defining in my classroom that's a finding across the country in all sorts of different environments so with various individuals and groups digitally excluded um, one of the key things is finding a way of creating uh, so whether this is grassroots organizations charities um, local government organizations maybe it's going to be in a library uh, or some kind of local safe space somewhere that isn't literally home but that feels homely that can be crucial to helping citizens who feel digitally excluded, digitally disengaged, Mm. to overcome those feelings of wariness and to begin to enjoy. One of the quite kind of surprising statistics that came out this year is that 53% of people in work don't have the digital skills they need for work. So that's and that's a huge figure. Yeah. And so that's 53% of people who are feeling mm. nervous, who are feeling uncomfortable. And that's not a good state to be in. If that's going to be the majority of the time or even a significant proportion of the time, that that isn't very healthy, you know. So it's really important that people find out ways of feeling comfortable online. It makes me think everything that you're saying to go back to this question of writing and feeling at home and feeling familiar or unfamiliar with 
a quote that I came across when I was doing some reading for this podcast, which is, the writer is not at home, in the sense that every act of writing puts us in a place that is to some degree unfamiliar, this kind of symbol-making activity. So I wonder if you have some, some thoughts about this. Do you feel at home when you write? Or is there, it seems to be perhaps like the writer is somewhere in between a familiar and an unknown space. And it's, it's that, that kind of threshold of experience maybe is what pushes you to write as well, because you don't quite know what you're going to produce, but you're also getting to know it as you produce it, right? It's, I don't know how it's for you, but well, <laughs> for I me, think, it, it, I think it feels like that. I think that often when people are writing and they've got in, in the flow, so there are various phrases, you know, in the flow, you're mm. in a different headspace. These really are indicative of, of how kind of removed you can become. Mm. And, and so actually you, you go into a different home. It's a kind of removed home. It's a very exhilarating version of home where you are just all you're doing is writing and exploring. And I think that there's um, a writer called Peter Turchie talks of, of it being like map making so that you're having to map the territory. You're creating if you're writing fiction you're creating an imagined space but you're having to make it concrete for the reader you have to so as a writer you have to find yourself walking around in that space as if it is real mm. um and but you're mapping it as you go and so it's exciting it's exhilarating it's transporting and what i like about what you're saying as well is it's a space that isn't static it's one that occurs in motion you navigate this idea of mapping is also about charting a certain territory and I think that's something that you work with with your students as well you we've done some walks together from campus to the museum we've looked at objects that include maps uh, but also the different kinds of illustrations of place well, I think mapping is really helpful as a way of thinking about the writing process for students, partly because um, there are so many books out there that suggest that there are rules. There are, you know, seven types of stories that, that you know, this is the correct method. Whereas the idea that actually a lot of it is, is them mapping their own creative process and then mapping their own story is actually very, very helpful for them. And I think it's also helpful for them to realise that it's about mapping on experiences from the past that they have so all technology was new at some point a pencil was once new technology um, and so all of us have experience of having had to tackle something that was new that was unnerving and one of the things that I talk about in the book is is something that I call remediation of practice and the idea here is that remediation is applied to things like photography so a painting uh, is something that was familiar then photography came in that was new a lot of the conventions of painting were simply mm. applied so if you think about the kind of icons that you get on computer documents they are remediations of pencils um, mm -hmm. scissors so the scissor icon is used to indicate cutting a paper clip indicates that you should add an attachment or that you have added an attachment mm. um, and in the same way that these codes and conventions can be remediated to help us understand new technologies our own practice can be remediated to help us negotiate these new challenges so one of the main ones is that we're used to thinking of books as as very 
linear very ordered you start at page one you go through page two three and so on until you get to the end whereas of course in a game or on a website it's non-linear you might enter in one place come out another while a different user is going in at a different place and coming out a different place so that's the user's experience or the readers the writer has to be able to account for that mobility that unpredictability and i think actually map making is is something that really really helps students with that if somebody I don't know, reposts a a social media post from 10 years ago, you may not necessarily spot that it's 10 years old and it it may Mm. look as if it's it's just, you know, being posted just now. Um, And I think that that can be quite tricky for writers. I think it's particularly challenging for for young writers who are making their name. And and essentially, of course, once it's online, once it's published, it's out there. And so definitions of self-publishing have have had now really have to take account for the fact that every single tweet is an act of self-publication. Every single Mm. Instagram post is an act of self-publication. And so students have to be much more aware of some of the legal and ethical implications, as well as of the fact that the stuff is just out there than writers who were starting out used to. And I think as a, as a teacher, you, you have to help students become aware of this because it is a very different environment now. Yeah, exactly. So I, and I think that, you know, we've sort of come a long way really from starting to talk about you know, home and writing, but I think in a way we're talking now more about what's coming next. So I would like to end with just asking you some thoughts on how do you imagine writing will change in the next 20 years or so? Well, I actually think that we're in a very exciting place and I think that there are some challenges that have to be faced down really uh, for individual writers and as a society as well because obviously you know we've got to try and make sure that everybody's digitally included if they don't want to be then they have to then it has to be possible for them to to live life offline but for those who want to be and who will benefit then then obviously everything should be done to make it possible for them to be digitally engaged digitally included the pace of change is so fast that when a student shifts from being a new student to a graduate, even within that time frame, technology will have changed significantly, mm. new jobs will have emerged. And so the one thing that we can be sure of is, is that change is going to keep on going and things and it's going to be fast paced and so in that kind of environment there's no one particular set of digital skills that will prove future proofing and what's needed is creative flexibility that is what is going to see people through is they have to be able to see a new challenge work out what the main components are and how to deal with it and i think that the availability of all the online publishing tools frees new writers up to experiment and work out what it is they want to get out of the writing process so actually i think that these are very exciting times thank you very much josie that's been wonderful to have you here and and talk about these well i guess sort of mind-bending but also really exciting topics so yeah thank you very much Thank you, Anna. That Feels Like Home is produced by the Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture, MODA, recorded at Middlesex University. In other episodes, we will continue talking about contemporary issues that emerge from MODA's collections, from the gentrification of London's suburbs to the relationship between our homes, everyday things and memory. You can listen to these podcasts and download transcripts at our website, moda.mdx.ac.uk. And you can follow Moda on Instagram and Twitter at Moda Museum. 
and on Facebook at Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture. You can listen to these podcasts from your preferred listening platform and we ask you to subscribe if you like our podcast. To learn more about what you heard today, please visit our website and if you'd like to see an object in person, book an appointment with us by emailing moda at mdx.ac.uk. I'm Ana Baeza and I'll be back with more quirky stories, but for now, thanks for listening. Thank you.